I choose suffering. Hello, world, I'm your knockout girl. It's misbehavior, You ready, Freddie? I was born ready. It was terrible. They were so confused. You're like, why the fuck is this baby talking into a mic? Welcome, listeners, to the Misbehavior Journal Club. I'm Amiel Marino, PhD, here with... Leah Krevitt, Banff. We're two scientifically trained and certifiably funny females, bringing you the behind-the-scenes look at the latest neuroscience research with humor, hauntings, and humanity. Ooh, spooky Halloween! I love doing the research for these episodes. They're just my favorite. What about them makes them your favorite? That's my favorite holiday. So any reason to look into spooky things is just right up my alley. From one of my other writing jobs, I'm researching the Victorian era vampire panic that hit New England. <laughs> Sorry. Yep. 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 You don't you don't remember that from history class? That was I just enjoy words. And so when I hear vampire panic, I put it in with like gay panic, trans panic, you know, um, it was pretty much, except uh, they're not stabby-stabbying them when they're deady-dead. I'm just imagining like a, a sequel to True Blood or something. You know what? That's what it is. I'm imagining all of True Blood. Okay, <laughs> carry on. <laughs> what did they do with vampires who are not real? <laughs> wink! Nobody can see you wink! <laughs> That's the point of the wink. Well, they would usually... It was usually because of tuberculosis. They thought that the dead were sucking the life forces from the living. And it was whoever had tuberculosis first. First is the worst. Second is the best and usually dies from tuberculosis. And third is the one who has to dig up that grave and stab that first person. Damn. I need its heart. I, if you asked me to generate a list of, of things that are hard about the people around you dying of tuberculosis, that wouldn't have even cracked the top 50. I would not have guessed that was a risk. Yeah, you cut them open and you look at the heart for fresh blood and all of the things that you found there were, of course, evidence that it was a vampire, such as uh, the retraction of the skin so it looks like your nails and your hair is growing and like the Mm. bloating of the corpse with all of its gases looks like it's full, like it's been eating. I just want to emphasize to our listeners, this was well before we had any sort of scientific understanding of the fact that um, you can use electrical signals from the scalp to measure psychic energy. This was uh, into the like the late 1800s. Um, in much scarier and recent news, I found out my old primate center at the University of Washington is having to pay a fine to PETA for $540,000. To PETA? Did to they PETA. sue? Or? Yes, they did. It was in relation to a public records lawsuit in 2020, alleging mm. that UW Go Huskies refused to turn over records and documents that were associated with experiments and husbandry. Yeah, so that's a that's a private public distinction that I feel like people might not know about. Issues of animal related record keeping are fascinating mm. if you're me, which a lot of people aren't. I'm so sorry for those. So can I go around like just requesting them from all these institutions? And if they can't give it to me, I get half a million dollars? If you're very well organized and litigious, probably. Um, God damn it. 
I know that for sure at public universities, you have to, like, if someone asks you to hand over all your records that are animal related as defined by these parameters, blah, 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 you have to hand them over. That happened at uh, University of Minnesota, just some periodic mm-hmm. request. Um, at private institutions, you probably have to if you're taking public money, which most researchers are in some capacity. Maybe not. I don't fucking know. But these big, huge primate centers, they're always national and publicly yeah. funded. It's hard to get a primate, you guys. Or like, Maybe it's easy to get one. Getting a usable number and holding <laughs> on to them and bringing scientists over to do stuff to them. You, it takes a village. I like that there are, on the side of this Seattle Times article, there's an advertisement for some of the arts at the University of Washington right next to... Oh, yeah. They killed a bunch of pigtail macaques. Oof. Oh, cool. Silent movies on Mondays. I'm going to sign up for that. <laughs> what? Yeah. Why, uh, why did the macaques have to die? That sounds I don't know, like the why? setup to a <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, apparently, it was a disease that went through their colony, and mm. it was over a considerable amount of time. But it was also a considerable number of animals, and I guess they didn't do the best job recording it. Mm. University of Washington is still denying that there was anything that was done improperly. They also, in 2021, though, had to pay the Seattle Times ten thousand dollars for a separate lawsuit in regards to a different public records problem. Yeah, so this was the research center that I I didn't work at this. This one is their field one in Arizona, which is a a big boy. I worked at the one in Seattle, but I was uh, sad to see my my old employer in the public eye for something like this. Yeah, that's that's never easy, I assume. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe for some people it is. It's hard to get me to say something good about PETA, but public records are publicly accessible and it's like there are community members in institutional animal care and use committees by design. So like having non-scientist input into an, an oversight of research activities like, yay, all for that. PETA in other domains? Ugh. Okay, so what has actually transpired. A public university has had to give a bunch of money that it has gotten from taxpayers over to PETA. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) I, yep, I never thought about the economy of lawsuits and research. Perhaps I never will again. But if you're listening to this and thinking, I do want to work toward the welfare of research animals, but I don't want to go around doing stupid shit. Animal welfare is the discipline for you. That's the name of the subfield with like veterinarians and people who do research into what actually makes a quality of life for an animal who's used in research bearable. Anything else come up in your newspaper of choice? No, your turn. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Um, Speaking of taking turns and having ritualistic interactions, I was driving the other day. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you're driving in a car and you're looking at your mirrors, your side mirrors, you can see some things, but you can't see all the things you need to see that are happening on your sides. Mm -hmm. So 
if you're going to like change lanes into, let's say, the left lane, hypothetically, you're going to want to like look on your left mirror to make sure there's no car there in the space that you're about to try to occupy. But there's another space. There's a secret space. And and you got to like turn around over your shoulder to see that. And the problem is, I don't know if you know this, but when you're looking over your shoulder, mm-hmm. you actually can't see in front of you. Oh, yeah. I know. Yeah, you, do, you do it real quick. Exactly. And so that's why I think that driver's ed and epistemology should be taught in the same class. What's epistemology? It's the study of how we know what we know or why we think we know what we know. Wow, somebody just made up a job for themselves. <laughs> it's one of the most important things you can do is check yourself in a rigorous way. Boo! Boo! <laughs> I know what I want to be when I grow up, Mom. <laughs> well, and the thing that you're bumping on is the fact that it's very easy to go to a very ridiculous argument space, right? Okay. Okay, like think about when you're driving, right? Um, technically, in the moment when you're looking to your left over your shoulder to your blind spot to make sure that there's no car there, mm-hmm. um, when you look back, you look back straight ahead, and you actually turn into that lane, you're there, something could have entered that space in the very small fraction of a second while you weren't looking. How do you know, Amiel? How do you know and become willing to bet your life on the idea that something extraordinary didn't happen while you weren't looking. Is this a trick question? You've hopefully been checking all your mirrors and know who the other major players on the road are and where they are, and thus have found out that, okay, there's no car in that lane in that area. They could even speed up and reach that position um, and maybe not a deer. Uh, but yeah, you'll, <laughs> there's no absolutely perfect way to find out. So yeah, um, this is the sort of real life question that when I pose it to you, you're like, Oh, come on, there is an obvious answer. We do this bajillions of times a day. And we have not died yet. Well, some of us have died a lot of us. Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) And so that's exactly the sort of concrete example that you absolutely need, if you're going to study something like the question of how we know things. And that comes up in lab too. Uh, There are a lot of questions of how do we know this or that variable didn't affect our mice. And like that's at one end of a spectrum of good questions to ask about your experiment. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's like, how do you know a demon didn't sneak in and sprinkle saline on your animal's eyeballs? Like, I don't know, bitch, I just know. So what's the... Uh, The conclusion is when your kid's learning to drive, don't forget to use that as an opportunity to discuss Descartes. Why? Because he did epistemology. Why? No, why would that help anyone? Because then later when someone's like, "Mm, you're producing a very bad driver. That's what you're doing. One that is easily distracted into the metaphorical uh, questions of can I ever fully know things? And then they hit a tree. (laughs) I would disagree with you, but I had to stop thinking about multicellularity because I was like, I'm going to I'm not going to be able to drive safely if I continue down this literal brain road. Shared announcement time. Call your mom. 
And now it's time for notable news. <laughs> Short and sweet. Yep. Just she come on. She's done a lot. Her entire brain was rewired so that she could care about you. Your bones are made of her bones. That's a big <laughs> fucking deal. Ew. <laughs> I cannot stress how much of a deal that is. Or like at least your baby bones that are somewhere inside all of your adult size bones. <laughs> yeah, if you cut them open, there'd be like rings on a tree. That's how bones work. <laughs> I recently read a thing about the aging of bone marrow. And I'm like, wow, yeah. that's a whole factor I have never thought about and might never think about again. Does it change the taste? Hmm. I would have a very hard time believing that it wouldn't. I just Damn. like the volume as you get larger as an animal. You have more. Ew, gross. Okay, notable news. <laughs> What's notable? What's new? In this segment of the show, we're going to briefly present a number of noteworthy events or findings in the world of science. 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 I'm going to start us off with a little bit of story time. Are you ready, Leah? I was born ready. All right. Peking University International Hospital. 2014. Okay. A patient is admitted. It's a male, 32 years old, and he's presenting with a change in sexual behavior. It's so different when the patients are like an age that's very close to yours. Day one, frequent ejaculations, five to six a day. By day three, it's a more reasonable 20 to 30 times. Jesus Christ. When it reaches 40 to 50 times on day four, it was clear what was wrong. He had an imbalance of his yang and yang. And so he went to a traditional Chinese medicine specialist. Oh, no. That poor fuck. The milligrams of yang and yang weren't reported. I couldn't find that. Uh, but he had developed a headache, which I can see why. But also dizziness, nausea, fever, irritability, drooling, and tachyphrasia, which is speech difficulties. He was now ejaculating over 40 times a day, and from any touch to his sensitive penis, with no erection or semen production, because honestly, how can there be anything left in there but dust at this point? Obviously, I'm sure they weren't able to collect it all for analysis, but like, did they mention being able to collect any of it? Did they hypothesize what might be no. the composition? I am so curious. Day five, there was no alternative Western medicine diagnosis from neurologists, urologists, or psychiatrists. Finally, at the end of day five, he displayed characteristic phobias, anemophobia, which is a fear of wind, hydrophobia, fear of water, and photophobia, which is fear of light. And he was diagnosed with rabies. The family confirmed that he had been scratched by a dog Four months earlier. Oh, fuck. Day six, he developed apnea, which is a collapse in his airway, and his condition deteriorated rapidly, and he died at the end of day six. This is, I'm not, I know it seems like I have a dark sense of humor, but I, I, I hear about a guy dying and I go, shit. I'm not saying that you don't do that. I'm just saying mm -hmm. that unlike this patient, my refractory period is pretty high. How was that? How was that? I got, I got, I feel, I feel terrible. Leave all of that in. Okay. So what is rabies? Rabies is a zoonotic RNA virus. 
It's derived from a Latin term meaning rage or fury, and it occurs primarily in carnivores, so dogs, wolves, cats and bats, and raccoons in the United States. The incubation period can be anything from one month to 24 months. And while the U.S. has a really low number of like one or two a year, the global death rate is 61,000 people. First of all, makes it a wonderful candidate for a Halloween episode because holy shit, that's terrifying. I didn't realize um, it was that high globally. I kind of figured, oh, the U.S. it's low, so it's low other places. Nope. <laughs> nope. <sighs> I, I know I personally was confused when I first found out that if you're exposed to rabies, one of the things that you get is a vaccine against rabies. And my first thought was like, if you're exposed, you're exposed, right? What's a Mm -hmm. vaccine going to do after exposure? And that long-ass incubation period is part of it. Exactly. These uh, 61,000 deaths are mostly in rural Asia, 56%, and Africa with uh, 44%. All right, damn. There's a crazy high mortality rate. Unvaccinated people, also known as Republicans, can die seven days after the symptoms manifest. So the treatment is to get a vaccine and uh, seek immediate medical care. And this can increase the rate of survival because you're not going to be developing symptoms until later. So whenever you have contact with an aminal, go see a doctor. And um, apparently you should try to capture the animal too because one of the first questions the doctor is going to ask is well did you you have the animal tested for rabies and it's like what are you thinking at the moment that you're being attacked by a raccoon like (laughs) do you don't chase after it to try to grab it you're trying to get the fuck away and the doctor's like hmm yes but can we test the raccoon like (laughs) what who's going to be capable of doing that with, you know, wildlife rehabbers or people who do a lot of work with animals, they, they will know and be equipped to do this. And that is a sizable cause of bat mortality if people are trying to help a stuck bat, but they end up accidentally getting, you know, a scratch or a bite. Mm-hmm. Uh, that bat will have to be euthanized. Uh, to check it for rabies. Oh, fun fact. Yeah, the only way to check and see if an animal has rabies is to euthanize it. There's not like a piss test for rabies. Well, god damn it. I guess they really, really want to know. So they're checking inside the brain for some of the telltale signs of it. Yep. Something like that. Probably. Yeah. 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 So if an animal attacks you, beat it to Keep death. It. <laughs> <laughs> and drag it behind you as you enter the emergency room. I think you'll get helped right away. (laughs) That way also, you know, that classic line of if you have a big injury and someone's like, oh, what happened? And you're like, you should see the other guy. In this case, you can just look, look, look at the (laughs) other guy. In my mind, it's like a big fat raccoon, you know? But in actuality, it's probably like a squirrel that I just have in my lap. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm, dead squirrel in the lap. Most popular girl in the ER. Now serving patient number 56. Patient number 56. <laughs> the dead squirrel in his little mouth is holding my tag that says I'm patient Aww. number 64. Yeah. Um, <laughs> emergency rooms are run like bakeries, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah, you take a number. and it, Yep. All right. So how do you get it? Well, 
Leah already arrived at that. While scratches will give it to you as well, biting is the primary vector for the transmission of rabies, and it requires the host to change its behavior. So this envelope virus infects neurons. It targets the surface receptors of the nerve fibers that are innervating the muscle around where the bite is. So in order to get your muscles to contract, there are neurons that innervate them and give them that signal. That is what the virus is seeking out. It travels up these peripheral nerves somewhere in your body, maybe a limb or um, your torso, to the dorsal root ganglia at the spinal cord. And this can take weeks. The next neuron that will be infected from an infected neuron is the one that signals that infected neuron. And this is called retrograde transmission. It's kind of like, okay, so if you use that old and tired analogy of thinking of synaptic transmission as a game of telephone, where, you know, one neuron turns and whispers to into another neuron's ear, and okay. a neuron whispers into a muscle's quote-unquote ear, and that's mm-hmm. the, the synapse. Um, retrograde transmission is like, if you're a muscle cell and a neuron next to you whispers into your ear, if you turned back around and spat water right back <laughs> into its mouth, that's... And it doesn't require, like, fancy new machinery and or that, anything. And that person catches it in, in its mouth and then turns to the yeah, person in front of them, <laughs> spits it back at them. <laughs> yeah. And it's the, the idea that you can turn around and spit stuff back into your sender's mouth, like, that's not a super wild idea. Like, there's already it uptake. Is. It's kind of the craziest <laughs> thing that we've come up with. That's totally fair. That's totally fair, but also all of life is exactly like that. <laughs> it's not weird. Life is weird. So yeah, a, a cell will take up neurotransmitter that's given to it from a sender, but there mm-hmm. will be a certain amount of, you know, cellular backwash from various contexts for various reasons. So yeah, Life is disgusting. Everybody's sharing everything. (laughs) Don't ever assume that stuff can only go one way. Speaking of disgusting, here are some of the symptoms. So in the early stages of the disease, and this depends on what type of animal you are, uh, you can feature flu-like symptoms like fever, loss of appetite, headaches, fatigue, nausea, malaise. That's always funny when I see that on there. Yeah, it's such like, it, it, it reminds me of ennui. You know, it is. Like, That's basically oh, what they're saying. Oh, you're uncomfy, buddy. And it's like, yes, everything hurts. Use a different word. <laughs> this is not a luxury pain. In the doctor's office, the test that they usually use to determine malaise is a hand that the back of it has been gently applied to the <laughs> forehead of the patient. A cigarette in one of those holders. <laughs> yep. Later in the disease, uh, there can be a progressive paralysis or even a coma that sets in before you eventually die. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, oh, yeah, that is an animal that can give you rabies. Hey, little buddy. Hi. Good boy. Oh, who's a good boy? <laughs> you do a good wolf. Thank you. I can do a good dog bark, too. Not that it gets me anywhere in life. I can't imagine that it wouldn't. Keep at it. Keep at it. Thanks. Thanks. But then there's the behavior symptoms, which a podcast like this is really excited to understand exactly where the hell they come from. Yeah. 
different behaviors that occur if you're like supposed to be a host to this virus versus, you know, the ones that don't die from the disease versus a dead end host, quote unquote, that will die from the disease. What different species respond differently to the same stimuli? So dead end hosts include rodents and humans. They display behavior changes that might be different from the natural hosts. What are you calling a dead-end host? Only sometimes do those dead-end hosts uh, display aggressive behavior. The behaviors include aggression, hydrophobia, anemophobia, that fear of wind, which is basically like fear of outdoor spaces or like an open window, and even like fine um, disturbances such as feeling wind. They are very sensitive to any stimuli, so that can be irritating. Yeah, when you first said wind, I I just assumed the tactile sensation, but you're saying like, no, if you put them in an open field test, they'd hug the walls like, whoa, if you put them in an elevated plus maze, they'd be in the closed arm all the way. Hot Mm -hmm. damn. So it's a hypersensitivity to sound, light, wind, water, heart, go planet, and to pain. Ooh, and there's also a restlessness or an urge to roam, even though you've got that sensitivity to wind. So you're just an irritated roamer. That sounds like a very good song, but a terrible way to live, which is often something that makes for good songs. Okay, carry on. (laughs) So we all know the hydrophobia aspect of it. My mom's visiting in town and when I was telling her about it, she was saying that you can't swallow. Uh, so all the water comes out and that's what the foam is. And yes, there's a difficulty swallowing and it's it's brought on by the contraction of your diaphragm. So even the sight, sound, or mention of water, this thing that could go down your throat, can trigger this type of spasm in you. And um, if any of our listeners are super not into rabies and this is just not your episode, I'm going to give you a a mental respite, a a little happy place to go to. Think about the developmental neurobiology of learning to swallow. Um, That shit is hard. (laughs) It's somewhat simple, but for the first time ever doing it, it's a very complex series of of muscle contractions that Mm. a baby has to go from not using for sustenance to only using for sustenance. That shit is amazing. There was a Dave Barry cartoon that I remember that had a picture of a baby and its digestive system. And it was a tube from the mouth of the baby going in towards where maybe the stomach would be, but doing a U-turn and then coming right back out of (laughs) the mouth of the baby. Oh, yeah. Speaking of substances being able to go one way, but then also back the other way. Yeah. Yeah. And the behavior that I described at the top of this segment, hypersexual arousal. Now, this is a, a rare and an atypical symptom. It's more common in males, and it involves uh, priapism, which is a prolonged erection, ejaculation, and spermatorrhea, which is the emission of semen without an orgasm. So all the mess, none of the yes. That is, uh, I want that on a poster. That's a, it's a good slogan for <laughs> terrible phenomenon. For rabies? <laughs> Another good thing to point out to listeners even if it is already obvious to you, you never know who's not hip to the fact that adding rhea onto the end of the word is mm-hmm. like way more common than just diarrhea 
or yeah, amenorrhea. Like mm-hmm. amenorrhea, no period. Uh, rhinorrhea, runny nose. Galactorrhea, uh, nipples <laughs> leaking galactose. Or, uh, yeah, I think it's galactose. Uh, lactorrhea. I may be mixing those up, but uh, stuff coming out of your nipples is lactorrhea and or galactorrhea. And a beautiful name for a little girl, Rhea, yes. Or uh, that's my astronaut name, is galactorrhea. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm thinking of. So yeah, if you have a runny nose and you want to sound fancy, just bust out the old rhinorrhea. And a rheostat measures flow. I'm done. I'm done. Okay. (laughs) It's safe. In females that have this, it's uh, nymphomania and hypersexuality. If this is the initial presenting manifestation, you are likely to be misdiagnosed, just like the case study that I described at the top of this. It's not the first thing that comes to mind when somebody is displaying these hypersexual arousal symptoms. Truly, goddamn. So how the fuck does a virus change your goddamn behavior? Well, I stumbled across a really fun quote by a leading researcher of the mid of the mid 1900s. Oh my god, I'm old. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, that sounds weird. Which was uh, quote: No other virus is so diabolically adapted that it can drive the host in a fury to transmit the virus to another host animal. And it was really beautifully put. Never mind. You don't like it. Whatever. Shut up. Okay. What? So no, difficult. I, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's one of the genre. Okay. So it's fucked up Panglossianism. It's dark Panglossianism. You know, there, there's a Panglossian. Is that uh, the study of penguins? <laughs> kind of. Okay. No, it's, not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, but it could be. It would be so good if it were. Uh, but okay. So in uh, Voltaire's Candide. Which, if you don't want to read it, don't read it. Just listen to the musical. It's good. That's some good shit. Um, Candide is a musical romp that was only ever written that way uh, about a dude who just can't catch a fucking break. This sounds boring. Okay, but he had a philosopher, tutor, mentor guy dude who... That's not getting any better. Kept <laughs> <laughs> well, that puts you in a great headspace. I guess what I'm about to say. I guess other people like philosophy, and um, I fucking hate it. Tom, um, Tom's gonna be like, "Shut up, Ami! I want to hear all about this." <laughs> well, okay, philosophy is like, have you ever been talking with your PI about something, and at a certain point, you're like, "This is a question with an answer. Let's go next door to the lab." pour some stuff from some vials into some other vials, and then instead of talking about this, we can have an answer to this question. I can imagine like, not that. All question- <laughs> not all questions are like that, but some of them are. Yeah, yeah, move yeah, on. Yeah. Come on, let's go through the Philosophy is like that, but you don't... <laughs> you can't go next door. And that's that's not a new observation, but it's hell. Okay, well, you're not talking about the thing that you brought okay, up. Okay, the-, the only reason I bring it up. The study of penguins. <laughs> yes, so, Dr. Penguin... Uh, Pangloss, the philosophy tutor, kept going on about how this is, the phrase is, the best of all possible worlds. So you'd go and you'd see a penguin having sex with another dead penguin, and Pangloss would be like, well, you see, oh, the, oh, oh, Amiel, that's a thing they do. Not all of them, but enough. <laughs> enough to make the papers. You'd see a penguin having sex with another dead penguin, and if this you're is, Pangloss, you'd say... This is definitely say, the Halloween episode. <laughs> the Halloween episode. <laughs> That is the most terrifying thing. 
<laughs> Why? The penguin's dead. Necrophilia is like, the- it's anyway. a oh, victimless Jesus. crime. Next. So yes, Pangloss would come up with a reason why that's a penguins are adapted to have sex with other dead penguins. And that's like, that's the way that the earth runs the best. So there's a lot of evolutionary talk about how mm. this trait is adapted to be the best in this situation. And isn't it great that evolution optimizes for this shit? There is also a strain of dark Panglossianism where you look at like parasitic wasps that torture their hosts mm-hmm. and, and uh, you'll go, this is the worst of all possible worlds. God is a dick, mm-hmm. um, which is different from saying evolution is random because life is random and shit just happens. Specifically, the driver of evolution is a dick. That's what I'm reading here with this diabolical adaptation. Oh, God. Carry God. on. All right, we're finally there. Great. I find all of that usable. This disease is really difficult to study. The experimental models that we have of rabies aren't really the best at replicating what I described as the natural host displays of of behavior and symptoms. And um, even if we were able to, I don't know, put a bunch of like wolves in a laboratory and infect them with rabies, who wants to handle rabies infected bitey animals yeah Uh, not only that but even if you did hire a bunch of masochists then the incubation period for rabies is incredibly long you know could be up to two years and even if you inject rabies it doesn't always lead to an infection the most successful model that they were able to come up with was in skunks. Again, a horrible model organism to be working with, I Hmm. bet. But some models with skunks were actually able to produce that aggressive behavior. And it showed which areas of the brain have high levels of infection. Thank you, skunks. We know a little bit more about where this infection occurs in the brain. Thank you so much. That I yeah, I would never in a million years have guessed skunk in a million years. I, I would not have guessed skunks for a very long time. So while it's going through all of your peripheral nervous system and into your spinal cord, it uh, will find its way to the brainstem and in fact the red nucleus, which is a motor control area. It's filled with iron and that's why it is colored reddish. It's uh, a vestigial area in primates, and it's uh, more important in other animals in regulating motor control. And the raphi nuclei, which is a serotonin-producing control area. Legions in the raphi nuclei uh, lead to aggressive behavior, so presumably damage to the raphi nuclei lead to depletions of serotonin release from these raphi nuclei-ascending pathways, which leads to aggressive behavior. Thinking about skunks as a model animal just makes me wonder how how much variation there is in their neuroanatomy. And specifically, it takes me back to the first time I opened up a Volskull. And it, previous to that, I'd only worked with rats and mice, standard, the kind yeah. that you buy from <laughs> a bunch Walmart. of weirdos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they come in egg cartons, 12 at a time. <laughs> You can also order a gross of mice. (laughs) I bet you can. Yeah, and and when you open them up, you don't appreciate how similar they are until you open up more than one wild animal skull. (laughs) You're like, holy shit. I have been taking so much standardization for granted. 
I have never ever thought about skunk brains before in my whole entire life, Amiel. Yeah. That's kind of fucked up. I always thought they'd make, once you remove <laughs> the odor sacks, I always thought that they would make really cute pets. I mean, black and white, and they get that stripe, and they want to make love to you all the time, but you push them off. And- Wait, what? <laughs> But yeah, no, they're they're adorable. They are, right? Okay, I'm not crazy. No, they're very cute. So what about the sexual symptoms? Where the hell are they coming from? So we can only guess, but the virus reaches the spinal cord and it could infect the lumbosacral cord. It irritates the nerves that are sending impulses to the smooth muscles of the genitalia, the sympathetic nervous system of the hypogastric plexus or a network of nerves innervating the pelvic organs. It could cause a rhythmic contraction of the genitals, and this could cause ejaculation or hypersexuality. I'm probably drawing spurious links here, but that's just reminding me of the difficulty swallowing. Um, you know, the diaphragm the contraction. be muscle. Yeah, it's really hard to make a a muscular tube do the things you need it to do when it (laughs) needs to do the things it needs to do. There is so much coordination that we take for granted every moment of every day. I know that what I just described is a big mess of words, but it's just basically the foot bones connected to the leg bone, the leg bones connected to the pelvis bone, it's all that, but just with neurons. And yeah, like with any big mess of words... When you actually open up an individual and like look at all this stuff, it's a big mess of tissues. So yeah, when you do it, big mess wall to wall. When you open it up (laughs) on Halloween, when you open up your body and too much pumpkin carving, not enough skunk dissection. No, I'll say it. I'll say it. I don't care. (gasps) What if you could dissect like dead skunks and like take all of their smelly sacks and like use it to seek revenge against your enemies in some way everything except for the that those last half dozen words that is somebody's job i guarantee you there's there is a skunk sack dissector who makes bank <laughs> because nobody else or wants weird to art. do it <laughs> one of the two Rabies also infects the hypothalamus, the amygdaloid nucleus, and uh, various areas of the limbic system. This is a useful reminder to me not to put the hypothalamus at the center of the universe. Because when I think about thirst and hydrophobia, yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, obviously, uh-huh. you get the little bits in your hypothalamus that make you want liquids with this kind of mineral content or that kind of mineral content. No, you got it. You got a big whole brain. You got a brain with a lot of parts. Only some of them are the hypothalamus, and maybe more of them are involved in thirst, almost certainly. Rabies is really important for research because we've learned how to take this very infectious virus of neurons and use it to infect specific neurons that we're interested in with visualization tools. Yeah, uh, and, and those visualization tools have evolved over the years as as imaging itself has evolved and as we've gotten a handle on fluorescent proteins and stuff. That's how we cross the synaptic cleft is by using viruses that already do it. We are stealing, we are being very lazy, taking a thing that already evolved and saying, hey, hey, what if we plunk off a little one of these genes and also put a little green hat on you 
now go do the thing that you were already going to do and just we'll watch you. So the plunking that Leah is talking about is making recombinant viruses. Uh, these are viruses that we've modified their genome and uh, their ability to make more viruses has been highly controlled or turned off. My friend calls this baby rabies. Why is it baby? Because it can't really do much. It can only hop one cell. Yeah, I'm so small. I can't win. (laughs) Yeah. All right. (laughs) There you go. Usually uh, it can infect one starter cell and then spread it one time. So that's monosynaptic transmission. Then it stops there. Because if you had this continue to jump from neuron to neuron, then then a whole bunch of neurons are going to be lit up and you won't be able to study exactly what the neurons that are projecting to your area where you injected the virus into, where those neurons are projecting from. And that's it. So rabies is great for studying neuronal connections uh, because it allows you to visualize where the connections are occurring between brain areas at a cellular level. Yeah, I cannot overstate the importance of a stain. Just being able to see what the fuck you are doing. Uh Uh-huh. And... This won't help, really. Don't, no. I'll say I it bet anyway. it will help a lot. It, if you want an analogy that's partially incorrect, imagine, okay, imagine a pair. <laughs> <laughs> then you are so in luck. Then you've come to the right show. <laughs> but actually, yes. <laughs> so imagine a pair of iPhone headphones, right? Uh huh. None of this earpod business. The cordy, cordy fuckers. Mm-hmm. Where you got one for the right ear and one for the left ear. And imagine they're all tangled up. And then imagine you uh, put those in a box and added 20 more and just shook that box up mm-hmm. for a good half hour. And then you tried to look at it and see which right buds are connected to which left buds. That's a difficult job. Now... Do another thing and um, dip that whole mass in glue and then shake the glue off. But while you're shaking the glue off, add a bunch of stick-on magnets and Velcro and just just whip all that around. Just, you know, get some of the glue off, rumple it up. Uh, just no wrong answers. Just a just, normal just get Saturday in there. afternoon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is a party. When you're trying to understand this, this blob of cords and attachments and glue and shit... Um, you might find yourself a little bit vexed, a little bit ready for the challenge. Now imagine it's all invisible. (laughs) And you can't touch it. (laughs) Putting even just a few drops of food coloring in there, it goes a long way. Not only that, if I can jump on this analogy, if you have different types of earbuds then you can have Mm. certain stains that will only label the ones you're interested in. That's something else that uh, we're able to do now at this point. We can program those viruses to infect cells that have specific surface receptors on them that mark the type of cell it is. So if you're only interested in uh, cells in a particular layer of the cortex, where you're only looking at cells that can sense a particular neurotransmitter, we've got that ability now. So some uh, other little facts about rabies that I came across. The first symptom is pain at the site of the infection or wound. You would think, yep, you just got bitten by a warthog. Of course, you're going to be in some pain. It's not just 
that the tissue is damaged. It's a neuropathic pain from the virus replicating at the layer of the nerve and cells. Okay, another crazy fact. Uh, During the first early or prodromal phase, animals that were once shy could suddenly act aggressive, like I described, but also aggressive animals can become more timid and affectionate. Oh, great. So no fucking rules. So it, it fucks you up. Yeah. It's just all over the place. Also, uh, there's a uh, shift in the behavior of these animals. So, for instance, if you see a bat that's active during the daytime, that's not usually when bats are, are active. So some switching of these circadian activities could indicate that something's wrong. That's one of my favorite things that I learned from a bat rehab YouTube is that they, they, are, they can be kind of active um, during the day, but uh, not as... Not as much. Don't approach them. Sorry. Don't approach them. Yeah, leave them the fuck alone. Don't approach them. Just regardless. But that's a circadian activity for any nocturnal animal going daytime or diurnal animal going nighttime. So another major vector in the United States, other than bats, is uh, raccoons, which are typically active at night. So just uh, that's not their normal behavior all the time. Just keep away. Good call. I had a uh, speculating wildly that I wanted to share. Do it. All right. We are going to speculate wildly here. Something that neuroscientists aren't supposed to do. My speculation is maybe the rabies virus found the bitsy programs in our brain in the red nucleus. That this is like a basic mouth motion. Um, Bitsy? Bitsies. Can you you demonstrate? Oh, chompy chompers. (laughs) So maybe the rabies virus was able to find the exact programming in areas of the brain responsible for bitsies or chompy chompers. And this could potentially be in that red nucleus. I had mentioned earlier that's a part of the body that's involved with motor control. In primates, it's a bit of a vestigial area. This kind of biting behavior perhaps involves some of the neurons that reside there. This could also explain the hydrophobia because that's a basic mouth motion. Perhaps how I got to this wild speculation is from a paper that I read that I will look up and put in the show notes that (laughs) dealt with maternal behavior, specifically how rodents will hear a pup that is outside of the nest and it will go and approach the pup, scruff the neck of the pup in its mouth and bring it back to their nest for safekeeping. They found that there was a there was a particular population of neurons from the MPOA to the brainstem that when they shut off the activity, the animals would hear a pup and go and approach the pup and open their mouth and not close it. They were unable like- to complete this motion They knew they wanted to open their mouth when they finally got to the pub, but they couldn't put together that next just very basic motor movement. Like a a broken arcade claw. Yeah, exactly. So what if like that's similar, like this this bitsy programming is in our brain that helps us chompy chomp and the (laughs) virus was able to find that and makes you want to chompy chomp when you have the virus. I use silly words in serious contexts often, and I'm, it's not 
what I'm experiencing now is <laughs> like a taste of that, and it's delightful and disorienting. <laughs> That's uh, my motto. D and D, yeah. Chompy chomp. That's good. That's... I call it double D's. Yeah. I'm into the bitsy hypothesis. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for letting Dude. me speculate wildly. And and literal wild because oh. of the nature of the disease we're talking about. Yeah, we need that. That's my coverage on rabies. Thank you so much for bringing it. I'm glad we learned a lot about a new model animal for a fascinating and giant disease. I'm always really excited to bring diseases to any party. And I... <laughs> That's good. That's some good shit. Okay, so now it's time for closing ceremonies. During this part of the show, we're going to give you some takeaways. Mine will be real short and sweet, and Leah has a nice juicy fat one for you this time around. Would you like I to go? Do. <laughs> Don't that know what. Yep. What? Would you like to go first? I would love to. All right. Halloween is coming up, or it's already passed, or it's now. Those are the three options for our <laughs> temporal relation to Halloween. <laughs> Halloween exists. <laughs> because Halloween exists, I went scouring the internet very lightly for vaguely spooky neurobio related phenomena. And one that I came across is infrasonic vibrations and their effects on humans, which are numerous and fascinating to study. And it's one of those things where there is a lot of research into it. Some of it is just purely sensory, perceptual, the biophysics of taking in vibrations and processing it. Uh Some of it is emotional, psychological... Uh, sound design for theaters, for example, or oh. or windmill design. Uh, there are a lot of well, okay, that, okay, and 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 there's this caramel ribbon running through all of this of crazy ass shit that is like five G conspiracy theorists, you know? Okay. Um. So you have to like be on the lookout for that. One example is you know windmills cause cancer. Uh, No, they don't. The vibrations from windmills fuck us up in all these fundamental ways. No, but vibrations are vibrations and the degree to which and ways in which they affect people turns out to depend on like a ton of variables. So there are a lot of interesting studies on how vibrations are conducted through different media and like how the architecture can affect which vibrations get taken where. Um, And all of that is like a super fascinating body of research, which I am wholly unqualified to speak on, except to say, go look it up and be very careful of weird, less scientific shit when you do. Great. Please follow the show on Twitter at MisbehaviorJC (laughs) and answer... Oh, you you had more. Oh, okay. So much more. (laughs) So... All right. Infrasonic vibrations can evoke the heebie-jeebies in people, according to some studies, which I have not read and vetted carefully. So grain of salt, area of active research. I don't know. There's an association. That's what got me here. But once I got thinking. So what I know, I'm so glad you asked. What I know is that infrasonic vibrations are one of my favorite kinds of things. Category fuckers. 
So when we learn about our five senses, you learn you got the taste and the smell and the sight and the touch and the hearing. Thank you, and Jerry then, Seinfeld. Um, oh, no. Oh, that hurt. I'm so sorry. Um, okay. Okay. That's God damn it. Now, every time I open my mouth, I'm going to be, am I about to say, am I about to go to Jerry Seinfeld? Fuck. <laughs> I don't want to go to Jerry's space. They talk about it just happens. and the hearing and the touching. <laughs> well, anyway, so, oh, wow. Thank you. That's my, that's your Halloween gift to me. Yes. Um, hey, Leah, are you thinking about it? <laughs> don't think about it. Oh, oh! You're welcome. I hadn't tried. Okay, thanks. Anytime. I'm not it. Here all day. Um, so yes, we learned that hearing and touch are two separate modalities, mm-hmm. and in many ways they are. But fundamentally, it's just vibrations that yeah. you pick up with your ear parts or with your other body parts. Yeah. Okay, it's not that the distinction is arbitrary. It makes sense to have there be a distinction, but I love playing in that space where it breaks down. Kind of like hair. You know, you've got your scalp hair, and your eyebrow hair, and your eyelash hair, and your leg hair, and your pubic hair. And then at some point in your life, you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I look on my leg, there are very small, very small areas, but non-zero areas on my leg that have hair on them, which is best described as pubic hair, but they're on my leg. So are they leg hairs? Are they pubic hairs? What even is everything? Why do we do language? What the fuck are we doing trying to use words to talk about bodies? And infrasonic vibrations is uh, one of my other favorite examples of that. The thing you said about hairs, there are some hairs that are on your leg, but they look like pubic hair. Mm-hmm. I may have spoken a little extra that's universally. Not, that's not a universal phenomenon. Aha. I don't have that. I don't know what that is. Mazel tov. So other people in the audience might act. That might be like distracting. Like, wait, what is I? Because I could, I don't know what that is. Where, where are those on your leg? Very close to one's pubis. Okay, so they're pubic hairs that are just kind of like diasporaed a little bit, <laughs> a little bit further away. The pubic diaspora. Yes. Okay. Yes, though. I will expect that's more perfect. of those as I age, but like, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, that's not a universal thing. People might not know what that that is. Okay, wonderful. Well, it happens in some people, and I am one of those people. Okay. And I am happy to report on that phenomenon. So yes, infrasonic vibrations, first of all, they're not below the range of human hearing. Many, many sounds that are like in the infrasonic range can be heard depending on how loud it is, depending on the sensitivity of the person. They're under 20 hertz, right? Yes. Okay. Which is not like, the second you start thinking about it, that's not a universal cutoff that would make no sense. So there are some people who can hear frequencies below that, some people who can't. Category fuckers. So again, I don't want to tell you that infrasonic vibrations definitely make people get the heebie-jeebies. There is some research on it. It's cool. It's fun. I don't know how legit it is or how universal it is, because I have not put the work in at all. Yeah, so what? What do you know? (laughs) 
I do know that there are some kinds of stimuli that have effects that you wouldn't have predicted necessarily. Like, I am going to go out on a limb and say that it's more likely than not that certain kinds of infrasonic or low sonic vibrations can make a person feel kind of spooky and get the heebie-jeebies. Okay. I think that is a thing that at least some proportion of people can experience. Would you um, say like, that you're speculating wildly? I am! I am! Thank you! Thank you for giving it a label. And in that mess of wild speculation, I love thinking about the weird experiences that we would never predict. If you were looking at any other animal's nervous system, would you ever predict that, like, oh, vibrations in this frequency, if I put them together like this, it'd probably make it feel creepy? Is that something that you would ever think to predict about any animal? Well, I would think that some stimuli would be uncomfortable. Yes. Uh, there's, in fact, uh, some different types of touch that can be applied to rats. That, uh, depending on the frequency in which you have physical touch rubbing them, they can find it pleasant or unpleasant. One of those uh, could easily be a creepy thing. I'm dating this one guy who likes to very lightly touch me, and it always feels like there's like a bug crawling on me, and I just want to shake my arm off. Yes! I, I had someone who was, who was petting my hair in like, at a very precise frequency, and with no, <laughs> you know, no scritches or anything. And no it was scritches! Like, <laughs> it was nice at first, but it was, it was the same all the time, and now whenever I'm seeing someone pet an animal in that same way, I'm like, no, break it up! Get some scritches in there. They hate it. They don't <laughs> Probably. Like maybe. Rhythmic. I don't know. Everyone's different. <laughs> yeah, that too. Anyway, that makes me think about all different kinds of umwelts and just animal experiences. We don't ever fucking know them. How do the different sensory stimuli that you're taking in affect your body? Sometimes in straightforward ways. Often not. Uh, that's my Halloween mindfuck for you. That's my t takeaway. Is that, I said the word of the thing that this is the section for. You're welcome. You did. Why, thank you. <laughs> you brought a two mind fucks to the show today. Your intro about how, oh. how upsetting or distressing it can be <laughs> about um, if you break down what you're exactly employing in your brain to be able to drive and some assumptions you're making. And then I suppose uh, some assumptions in research is how I would summarize this takeaway as um, there are way too many ways in which feelings can be felt by things and, ah! <laughs> now that is fascinating to me because you use the word upsetting and the words too many. I think delightfully bewildering and an astoundingly large amount. Yes, so, uh, but also, ah, with a smile. The, that's exactly the same. <laughs> that's the same sound. <laughs> oh, we're going to pretend it's, yay! Is there anything you would like the listener to take away as they run screaming from this episode? Yes, thank you, Leah. My takeaway is, however you're flossing, you're doing it wrong. You don't know me. Joke's yep. on you. Yep. I can't floss wrong, because I don't floss. You don't have teeth. Oh. <laughs> then that's wrong, because it's not floss. Anyways. Please How? follow the show on Twitter. Wait, what? At that's it? Yeah. I told you it was short. How do you floss you right? 
There's no way to floss right. Oh, okay. So the only winning move is not to play? How are you? (laughs) (laughs) How did I need so much more, Amiel? Uh, Please follow the show at Twitter at MisbehaviorJC. Shouldn't have talked about And at Instagram at that same thing. You can find Leah at Hawks in Socks. And that's Hawks, H-O-X. Thank you for allowing us into your auditory pathway. Hopefully at a frequency you find pleasant. (laughs) Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Just do not tell your P.I. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. We would love new listeners and to make them happy as well. And we hope you join the club again soon. And don't forget to misbehave. Yes.